Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. You're listening to a podcast from the South China Morning Post. Hello and welcome to the China Geopolitics Podcast. My name is Jared Watt, Specialist Digital Editor for the South China Morning Post. And talking to you from our podcast studio here in the South China Morning Post offices, as Hong Kong's social distancing measures are eased, the beaches have been reopened, and tourists are welcome back. Let me just recap some of the headlines in geopolitics this week in case you missed them. The week began with China declaring a ban on fishing across an area of the South China Sea that stretches from the east coast of Vietnam to the west coast of the Philippines, just one week before the Philippines' national elections. Russian state media delivered a threat to the people of the United Kingdom by broadcasting an animated video showing how a Russian thermonuclear torpedo would detonate off the coast and create a radioactive tsunami that would wipe out Britain and Ireland. That must have been quite a surprise for Japan's Prime Minister Fumio Kishida, who was in London this week to sign a new Indo-Pacific Defence Cooperation Treaty with the UK. Mr Kishida was quoted as saying, Ukraine may be tomorrow's East Asia. Which is ironic, because yesterday South Korea signed on to the NATO Cyber Research Centre, and one of the more troll-like figures of Chinese state media tweeted a warning that South Korea is on a path that, quote, could be a Ukraine. Meanwhile, the Solomon Islands and its not-very-secret security deal with Beijing continues to raise tensions, with its Prime Minister Manasse Sogavare standing up in his nation's parliament this week and again attacking his critics, but this time taking a new tack. Not only did he quote the words of Jesus Christ, he made this interesting reference. We do not have to be warned, Mr Speaker, to be aware of the working out of their strategy. In other parts of the world, where small and big sovereign countries were either invaded or they covertly undermined the sitting government because some people are not comfortable to deal with and come to terms with the principle of do unto others as you would have them do unto you. Mr. Speaker, a statement attributed to the founder of the Christian religion, Jesus Christ, our Lord and Saviour. You're going to hear more about that and more about how Beijing did some very important diplomatic groundwork last year with the Christian communities in the Solomon Islands. So what does Australia do now, finding itself wedged between competition with Beijing for influence in the Pacific while not being seen as a neo-colonial bully? But first, we're going to grapple with the story that is developing as we speak. Hikvision is China's and the world's largest manufacturer of surveillance and thermal imagery equipment. And yesterday, we read reports the US Treasury Department is moving to list it on the specially designated nationals list, which would prohibit any American citizen or company from dealing with it. The report has sent shockwaves through both China's tech industry and through Wall Street, and it suggests that the so-called tech war launched against Chinese companies under the Trump administration three years ago has just been significantly escalated. 
I know exactly the person you need to understand what this means. Let's get to it. So this morning, I'd planned to speak with our North American Bureau Chief, Rob Delaney, about last night's scheduled speech by US Secretary of State Anthony Blinken. And Mr. Blinken cancelled his speech after a COVID-19 diagnosis, and instead, I found myself reading a report suggesting the US is about to make a massive step forward in its sanctions on Chinese technology companies, targeting one of the world's largest manufacturers of video surveillance and thermal imaging equipment, Hikvision. And thus, here I am in a room with our tech desk editor, Zosian, who I will remind listeners, new and old, was one of the founding members of this podcast. Zosian, welcome back. Thank you, Jarrett. It's great to have you back in the studio. Let me just start by clarifying this story, which began with a report in the Financial Times. And yesterday, Hikvision issued a statement that it remains to be verified. Jason, can you recap for us what we know today and why this is such big news? Okay, there's still no uh, confirmation or denial of this report. So Hikvision, as you said, yesterday they issued a statement. They say they are still verifying the news. They are aware of the news, of course, because this is really matters to their future. And also they make very clear that they, they hope any you know, sanction should be based upon the facts. And also they kind of saying, you know, we are just a product maker. And we are trying to make technology for the good of the world. Yes, surveillance cameras can be used in some places, that is prison or, you know, labor camps. But remember that a surveillance camera can be used, lots of other places can be human good, in hospitals, in shopping malls, even for home security. It's interesting you raise that point, Josine, because you know, every story I've read online, including the SEMPs, includes a photo of a closed circuit TV camera on a wall, but surely... Hikvision's thermal imagery cameras are the ones that have been selling the most over the last two years. Well, this is a kind of like successful business story, right? The demand for surveillance equipment has been expanding across the globe. And China, with its technology and also the hardware, uh, making China is very, very powerful manufacturer of surveillance equipment. And Hikvision is, of course, one of the most successful companies in this business. They are still the number one, I guess, and uh, they are... Revenues last year was uh, about 12 billion US dollars, something like that, and their profit margin is quite healthy. So it's one of the most like traded company in, in Shenzhen Stock Exchange. And after the news, of course, if this uh, sanction is going to be really implemented and imposed, then their global business will be, will be hit hard. So that's why we're seeing yesterday Hikvision has lost 10% and today so far has lost another 10%. So it's, uh, it's quite serious. For investors, everyone knows that this is, a, this is a much bigger you know, than, the, than the previous entity list sanction. Well, I'm glad you mentioned the entity list sanctions because can we just circle back here? I say this is a major step forward. People have been reading since 2019, you know, when the US first put Hikvision on a government entity list and then in 2020, when Hikvision, Huawei, 18 other Chinese companies were placed on a list by the US Defense Department, alleging they were backed by the People's Liberation Army. These are sanctions by the US Treasury Department. Can you clarify what exactly this means? Well, I think the entity list is from the Commerce Department, and this kind of special designated nationals will be handled by Treasury Department. So it's much more serious. For instance, lots of Chinese companies are already being on the entity list, but it's not a death penalty. You know, Huawei is on the entity list, but Huawei is still doing its business. 
But if it is included on that treasury blacklist, which means it cannot trade with any U.S. financial institution, U.S. any citizen, and its asset in the United States could be uh, frozen. So this is quite serious, which also means, you know, basically it cannot do dollar payments with any U.S. institution. And this will be a kind of death sentence for their global business. So this is really, really serious. And more importantly, because this has never happened before, you know, using this kind of such a heavy threat of sanction against the Chinese tech company. There are talks about like the U.S. might do something similar to Huawei, but it never happened. But now this is the first, first time on the Financial Times, if the report is true, that you are seriously considering putting Hikvision on that. And this could have set a very dangerous precedent. So Hikvision will be the first, but it will not be the last if, if it becoming a trend. So this is also really, uh, you know, angered the Chinese government. Can you tell us what your sources, what analysts have been saying about this decision in this 24 hours since this came out? What's the reaction? You've invoked the name of Huawei and its impact of sanctions. What are people saying about this decision? Well, first of all, if the report is true, it will be a significant escalation of this uh, US-China take war. And it's also kind of redoubled the confirmation on the China side that uh, the United States will not relax any of its uh, containment of China's technology development. And Huawei is already a very big case. And if they do it to Hikvision, this, is a, this is, will be another kind of like milestone case. And one thing that really worried people is that it's going to be leading from like case-by-case case, uh, sanctions. It's going to be kind of a full-fledged technology war. So this is a really, really worrisome. And of course, the United States can find this on this human rights abuse ground to impose their sanctions. But, you know, China has been repeatedly denied, saying this is the lie of the century of what's happening in Xinjiang. So for a company being caught in between this, they're kind of like playing, uh, or at least like claiming to be innocent. You know, I, I am uh, making of knives, okay? The knives can be used in kitchen, but I can also use in murder. You know, they, they, they really cannot control that. If this starts the, the kind of sanctions, then where we stop, right? If I'm a steel plant making steels, you know, steels can be used skyscrapers, hospitals, and schools, but they can also be used in built up prisons. It's like no company would be safe if this is going to be, become the reality. I feel compelled to invoke the name of DJI. Now, there's a company that's sort of been targeted by US sanctions, but at the same time, we're seeing the Ukrainian army, the Ukrainian civilians using DJI drones to fight against the Russian army. And I feel that is emblematic of the argument you put forth about the use of technology. Exactly. So DJI was forced to make a statement saying, OK, we are, we're not going to sell any of our equipment to Russia or Ukraine because of the accusations that their equipment are being used in military uses you know, to, to kill people. But the company also made a statement very clear thing, you know, we are always committed to making civilian equipments. Our products are not supposed to be used in military purposes. And if someone is using our drones for military purposes to carry bombs, this is totally against our company policy. And I think this is, a, this is most of the Chinese technology companies will say. So we are developing our equipments. You know, these equipments can be used in multiple applications. Sometimes they do not have the final control of the end use. But, you know, you can't find a place saying, you know, this is a, so your equipment is used 
in this kind of scenario. So your company is really bad and you're supposed to be subjected to these kind of punishments. And I think when the United States first put Hikvision on entity list, and Hikvision was coming out, was saying basically, no one came to us, talked to us, and, you know, to investigate, to ask our opinion and our, our views on this. So they're kind of like being, we're just making of these equipment, civilians, cameras, yes. But, you know, you just cannot find one kind of application scenario and then impose all the sanctions upon us. This is a, this is a corporate position. And from Chinese government, it's even more clear that this is a, like the United States is trying to use all kinds of excuses to hurt the Chinese companies. And more interestingly, we will see whether the Chinese government will retaliate, right? If, if you say, okay, you are hurting our Chinese tech companies, Huawei, DJI, Hikvision. On the other hand, Apple mobile phones are still popular in China. And you know, China is still some kind of rolling red carpets for Tesla phones, all these kinds of things. If you look at all these computer equipments in, in China, and uh, almost every computer is still using a Microsoft operating system, and the chips are still like Intel. So this is, a, this is a very, very interesting because like where we stop. You've posed me a question, Josina. I have to pose you one back. What comes next? What are you looking for? And as you say, there is speculation about how the Beijing government might retaliate. Surely there's mixed messages where you've got the US trade rep, Catherine Tai, talking about lowering tariffs. And on the other hand, we're seeing reports of sanctions on, on Hikvision. What comes next, do you think? Well, let's hope for the best and prepare for the worst. That's a, that's a line I would say, because for now, neither the White House nor the uh, Treasury Department has confirmed the news. And China has already made the stance very clear. So hopefully, you know, there can be some tone down as, as last time we saw, like there are also speculations Huawei might be put on that list, but it didn't happen. At least, you know, there's some, still some room for negotiation and for, for, for talks. And also, if, if, I mean, you know, for many analysts, if the United States is going to punish these technology companies with the purpose of changing China's policy in Xinjiang, I don't think that's feasible because for the Chinese government, as I said, you know, they regard all these accusations as a lie of the century. So there's like no point of uh, really pick up some uh, technology companies to saying you're, you're helping the Chinese government doing bad things because there are no such bad things from the Chinese government point of view. And imagine you are an equipment maker in Hangzhou and the, the government will say, I want some surveillance cameras. And maybe these surveillance cameras will be used in highways. Maybe we'll be improved security in residential compounds. And how could you possibly like to, to say no or say, I'm not going to do business with the Chinese government because the Amer Americans said you are doing bad things in Xinjiang. And I guess there's questions for the 120 other countries around the world that have Hikvision equipment installed in various places from shopping centers to airports to everywhere else. Exactly. So people still need these kind of equipment. If not Hikvision, then there will be other companies doing the equipment. And as we can see from the Huawei case, you know, they dismantled some Huawei equipment from the communication networks. But at the end of the day, you still need these kind of products. And if the American are not cost effective or not very competitive in these areas, these markets will, will still be occupied by, by the most competitive players in the, in, in the world, which happens to be most of them are Chinese. I guess we'll be watching the rescheduled speech from Anthony Blinken much more closely to see what he has to say about this. Of course, we'll be watching your team reporting on SEMP.com and your analysis over the weekend. Josine, great to have you back. Thank you, Jared. Hey, I'm Jasmine, one of the SEMP podcast producers. 
I want to tell you about this week's Listening Post newsletter. We found some great new podcasts for you to listen to from around the world, plus a brand new podcast I made about Hong Kong. I spoke with local publishers, authors, and booksellers to discuss how the political climate and the national security law have led to self-censorship and bookstore closures. But there's a lot more to the story. We've also got a podcast that explores how people are changing the world for the better, from disrupting and organizing society to teaching and healing those around them. And if you're curious about the Middle East and North Africa, we found a podcast that offers a collection of fascinating stories from the region. That's the Listening Post newsletter. Subscribe at scmp.com/newsletter, or hit the link in the description. Edward Kavanagh is a PhD candidate of international relations at the University of Adelaide, researching the Solomon Islands and its relations with China. It also works as the director of policy at the Australian think tank, the McKell Institute. Edward, welcome. Good morning. Thank you for speaking with me. How would you describe the Australian government's ongoing response in the past week? to the Solomon Islands and Manasseh Sogavare's decision to sign this secret pact with Beijing. Has it shown any empathy or is it more about the, quote, backyard and China not playing by the rules? Yeah, look, I think um, it's been not the finest hour in Australian foreign policy and in Australia's response to what we've seen happen in Honiara. I think I think it's helpful actually to provide a little bit of context for that for that claim. So for the last few years since Scott Morrison became Australian Prime Minister, he has actually really put the Pacific Islands at the forefront of his foreign policy objectives. Scott Morrison is a really interesting political character because he is deeply religious. He actually has a, a personal affinity for the Pacific Islands region dating back to when he was a, a child travelling around the region with his parents. And, and when he, he stepped into the role of Prime Minister, he was actually quite determined to genuinely, I think, re-engage with the region, to do the right thing and to, and to seriously improve Australia's standing in the region. Now, the subtext of that is China's growing role in the Pacific Islands and this sort of strategic denial of China that Australia's tried to achieve. But there was also, you know, some, some genuine efforts there by the Morrison government to improve relations. And this was sort of done in a few ways. One of them, one, one of the key ways that they've gone about this is by developing new initiatives. So there's this huge Australian Pacific Step Up, they call it, which is a multi-billion dollar suite of programs, which is all aimed towards improving Australia-Pacific Islands relations. But they've also been very cautious and deliberate in the language that Australia uses when it's talking about the Pacific Islands, because there's this history between Australia and the region where, where the region is very uncomfortable with any language it perceives as neo-colonial perceives as sort of interventionists in any way. And there's a real sensitivity within Pacific countries about Australia's encroachment into the Pacific. Now, Morrison, you know, I, I'll criticise <laughs> certain elements of, of his government and his government's foreign policy, but they have been intentional in their language with the Pacific for the past few years. But what's happened in the last couple of weeks is that very deliberate, very careful, very nuanced position on the Pacific has been completely blown up. So we saw this security deal between Solomon Islands and between China happen at the very start of an Australian election campaign in which the Morrison government is likely to lose or is at least expected to lose by the pundits. And instead of being consistent 
with this sort of uh, more cautious language around uh, the Pacific and the Pacific's right to self-determination, et cetera, we've actually seen the, the rhetoric from not only Scott Morrison, but some of his ministers uh, heat up and they, you know, effectively fanning the flames. Morrison famously used the term red line a couple of weeks ago, which was related to the threat of a potential Chinese security base in Solomon Islands. But we've also seen these old Pacific tropes like, you know, our backyard, et cetera, uh, being deployed by some of Scott Morrison's ministers. So there's been this really ca- cautious couple of years where the Morrison government was trying to say the right thing and they've really been blown off course in the last couple of weeks and that's undermined its position, I think, moving forward in not just Solomon Islands but the Pacific more broadly. Edward, I'm fascinated that you mentioned Scott Morrison's you know, links to the Pentecostal church, his deep Christian links that he's put on display. It's very interesting because... In the Solomon Islands Parliament this week, Prime Minister Manasseh Sogavare explicitly addressed not just the Christian religion, but China's support for Christianity, which is news to me, uh, given some of the things we've reported at the South China Morning Post over the years. I'll just play you that quote now. In China, there is more than 120 million real practicing Christians in China. Yes, it's big. Our own church, 500,000. Half a million now. Sir, this is more serious practicing Christian in China than the total population of the entire Pacific Island nation, including Australia and New Zealand, put together. Yes, there are rules. There are restrictions, Mr. Speaker. But Christianity is thriving because you know what? They obey the authorities. Edward, how do you respond to hearing Prime Minister Sogavare talk about China's great support for Christianity? Who is he talking to here? Well, this is, this is an interesting question about what the audience truly is, because I think if his audience is to everyday Solomon Islanders, I think he's going to re- have a really tough time selling that. Now, I've, I've reported as, as a journalist and done research all across Solomon Islands um, since it, it switched from Taiwan to China. And arguably the biggest concern that Solomon Islanders have, just everyday folks that aren't really involved in politics, that don't really think too much about this stuff, the biggest concern they had about Solomon Islands' relationship with China was the reputation China has for persecuting not just Christian minorities, but also Muslims and other religious minorities. And, you know, there's a real scepticism and a real genuine fear amongst many Pacific or many Solomon Islanders that this closer relationship with China could actually undermine uh, religious freedom within Solomon Island. So I think, you know, Manasseh Sogavari is probably trying to appease that widely held fear within Solomon Island society. But it also actually, I think, does reflect a pretty calculated and nuanced sort of argument that's been put to Manasseh Sogavari by the Chinese government. Now, they're, they're very deft and very capable at communicating the best <laughs> image of of China to Manassas Ogabari, to, to Solomon Islanders, to the rest of the region. We actually saw soon after Honiara recognised Beijing in 2019, Sogabari was asked to come over to Beijing. You know, they put on this phenomenal show, this phenomenal welcome. He was sort of received as you would receive a US president. I mean, it was a, a big a big performance. And you can imagine in those arguments, uh, those, those meetings, some of these arguments around, you know, we're concerned potentially about <laughs> China's engagement with religious minorities, et cetera, you can imagine a pretty good 
sort of response was put to Sogavari by the Chinese government there. And, and it seems like he sort of believes some of that, that rhetoric. Now, what he's saying is that there's 45 million Christians in China. That's more than the Pacific Islands. So, you know, <laughs> what are we worried about? I think that's a pretty, pretty shallow and a, a very political way of, of trying to deflect the, the concerns that Solomon Islanders have about, you know, potential impacts on their religious freedom. I also note a report from the Island Sun in the Solomon Islands from 2021 talking about a Chinese diplomatic mission to the Solomon Islands, specifically reaching out to Christian communities. And there was a quote here saying that this was the first ever diplomatic outreach by any nation to the Christian groups in the Solomon Islands. Does this indicate, again, you know, China's diplomatic victory? Or does it indicate Australia's diplomatic failure? I actually think this this um, engagement by the Chinese embassy in Honiara with the churches actually reflects its self-awareness that it's weak on this particular issue. Because it, this is a widely held fear that the more there is Chinese influence on society, on politics, the more Solomon Islands, you know, looks like China. And that's that's I don't think that's necessarily a legitimate concern in any time in the immediate future. But that's how some people internally actually see the threat of China being involved in Solomon Islands. I think what China is aware of and what the embassy is aware of, and they're quite competent political actors themselves within the context of Solomon Islands politics, they've identified this weakness. They're trying to to probably take the heat out of what (laughs) some of the religious leaders are saying behind closed doors or in churches about China and about China's role. And I think they're going directly to the source, going to the religious leaders and trying to present a a bit more of a friendly face about China's approach to religion than perhaps is the understood position within Solomon Islands. So this is just another example of of China kind of taking a relatively long-term view of developing genuine relationships, trying to, I think, discard the baggage that it has coming in and, and yeah, they, they, know, they know what they're doing. Um, I don't necessarily think that's a, a failure of Australian foreign policy or anything. I mean, Solomon Islands is an independent state. It decided, like most other countries, including Australia and the United States and many others, to recognise Beijing as opposed to Taiwan. That's not an illegitimate thing to do. And this, I guess, outreach by the Chinese is relatively standard diplomatic engagement but it still does signal this uh, this closening relationship between the two parties, which of course concerns Australia, concerns New Zealand and the United States. Now you referred to the ongoing Australian election, which from what I can see from here in Hong Kong is just moving beyond the realms of reason uh, and logical discussion. But do you see this discussion about Solomon Islands and its deal with Beijing being framed in terms of the different nations in the region of the Pacific and these different nations sort of aligning either with the US or China, or is it as one Australian politician in a cowboy hat declared, the Solomons are Australia's Cuba, referring to the 1962 missile crisis? How is the discussion being framed in Australia? Yeah, there's a bit of a bit of everything. I think the, the more cautious and the more rational and seasoned actors, particularly, you know, the shadow foreign minister, Penny Wong, and uh, even the you know, incumbent foreign minister, Maurice Payne, they're, they're far more measured in how they go about talking about Solomon Islands. And really what they are talking about is the region as a whole, about Australia's need to engage the region as a whole. I think there's 
a reluctance to single out Solomon Islands as doing anything sort of wrong or nefarious and for this fear of potentially looking like, you know, if Australia gets angry at Solomon Islands, maybe they'll get angry at another Pacific Island country at some point in the future. So there's heated rhetoric coming from voices that ultimately don't really shape Australian foreign policy, but they're certainly loud in the campaign. And that's, that is undermining Australia's position. But the more seasoned heads, I think the, the, the leaders of both parties typically are a bit more measured, albeit with Morrison saying a few of those comments, which, which haven't helped. But look, I think the challenge for either side of politics in Australia um, when they form government now is how do you placate Solomon Islands? How do you, how do you, how do you sort of uh, diminish the encroachment of China in that country? without looking interventionist and without actually causing fear amongst the rest of the region that if they engage in a sovereign decision, like in closer relations with China, that you're not going to stoke the ire of Australia. So it's a really delicate balancing act here. So you don't want to be too aggressive to Solomon Islands for that might actually undermine Australia's position regionally, but you also don't necessarily want to just let this China relationship fester and get worse and worse and worse, which, and that, if you're an Australian foreign policymaker, perceiving that as a threat. So it's a difficult, <laughs> it's a difficult balancing act, but people are framing this as a regional challenge and how they can kind of, they're thinking about this regionally for sure. We have two more weeks to go for the Australians until they vote and then possibly some more logic and reasoned voices begin to dominate discussion. We will no doubt be seeing a lot more daily headlines of the back and forth until then. Edward Kavanagh, thank you very much for your time. We will look for your posts on Twitter and online as this story develops. Thank you very much. Thank you so much for having me. That's all we have for this week's episode of China Jerry Politics. But of course, the news cycle is just picking up pace. We were, of course, waiting for the rescheduled speech from Secretary of State Anthony Blinken on the US-China policy as soon as he recovers from COVID-19. And the SCMP tech team in our US Bureau are working the phones hard for more news on these reported sanctions on Hikvision. By this time next week, we'll have an idea of the result in this weekend's Philippines election. And of course, there will be huge interest in how the new president will navigate relations with China, the US and the rest of the Indo-Pacific. We've got a great in-depth interview for you next week on the reality and the science of China's fishing bans on the South China Sea. Now, I've just spoken with China Desk editor Teddy Ng, and he says there's a lot more to come on SEMP.com this weekend about South Korea's announcement that it's joining the NATO Cyber Defence Unit. There's sure to be a detailed response from Beijing very soon. Now, if you haven't already, don't forget to subscribe to our weekly newsletter, The Listening Post, where you can get podcast reviews and podcast highlights delivered straight to your email inbox. And don't forget, it's Mother's Day this weekend. And if you ever wondered about the link between geopolitics and Mother's Day, we'll leave you with something published back in 1870, 40 years before it became an official holiday in the US and became the commercialised event you see today. This is an excerpt from something that's become known as the Mother's Day Proclamation. It was written by Julia Ward Howe as a reaction to the carnage of the American Civil War and the Franco-Prussian War. From the bosom of the devastated earth, a voice goes up with our own. It says, disarm, disarm. The sword of murder is not the balance of justice. Blood does not wipe out dishonor, nor violence vindicate possession. 
As men have often forsaken the plow and the anvil at the summons of war, let women now leave all that may be left of home for a great and earnest day of counsel. Let them meet first as women to bewail and commemorate the dead. Let them then solemnly take counsel with each other as to the means whereby the great human family can live in peace, man as the brother of man, each bearing after his own kind the sacred empress, not of Caesar, but of God. In the name of womanhood and of humanity, I earnestly ask that a general congress of women, without limit of nationality, may be appointed and held at some place deemed most convenient, and at the earliest period consistent with its objects, to promote the alliance of the different nationalities, the amicable settlement of international questions, the great and general interests of peace. Catch you next week. Bye for now. Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads.